Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, guys? It's an exciting time of the year for UFC 251. It's going to be one hell of a card, baby, and without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action, and we have the best place for you to go. My bookie, for the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, Try a parlay, for instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week. Parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. My bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000, which means if you deposit two grand right now, you'll get an extra grand in free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV, that's capital BLV, to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV. To activate your offer from my bookie, bet, win, get paid, my bookie. Today is Monday, June 29th, 2020, and it is a good thing to say that come July 23rd, July 23rd, 2020, baseball, MLB baseball, that is, is back. Yankees, Nationals, and D.C. to kick off the 2020 season. We got Garrett Cole versus Max Scherzer. That's the probable matchup. I mean, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. I thought there was no way in hell that baseball was going to be played in 2020 the way things were shaping up, but I guess we're getting it. And honestly, it's really exciting because there's going to be 60 games played during the regular season, which means that it's going to be a free-for-all, man. I mean, any team has a chance to make the postseason uh, given all it really takes is one big hot streak to put yourself in position for a playoff spot. The Orioles can catch fire in August, and they could position themselves to steal a wild card. The Mariners are in the same boat. The Mets, the Phillies, the White Sox. I mean, teams that were in rebuild mode three months ago in March are now thinking that they could pull something out of the hat and make a run. I mean, I mean why not? This season will have an asterisk next to it anyway. Why not kick ass for the next three months? Something to think about. The Yankees and the Dodgers, obviously... Favorites to headline the 2020 World Series as of right now. I mean, I'll sign up for that any day of the week. We'll definitely talk more about the upcoming 2020 season starting in July. We'll discuss more things when things become more clear. But for today, it's the start of a new week. And we got another interview with a Major League Baseball broadcaster, John Sadak. He's the radio play-by-play voice for select games for the New York Mets on WCBS Radio. He's done TV work with the Chicago Bulls on WGN-TV, CBS Sports Radio, ESPN, you name it. If you ever get the chance... To hear about John's story making it to his first MLE broadcast, it was quite the journey and well-earned for John. And we talk about his origins of broadcasting at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey, his time in Scranton with the Yankees AAA Ball Club, the build-up to his experience broadcasting with the Mets, and more here on episode 212 of the podcast, presented by Mecca Nutrition. If you're in the banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, head on over to MeccaNutritionStore.com right now using the promo code OSHO20, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-20, for $20 off your next order. Remember, swole's the goal, size is the prize. John Sadock, coming in hot. Broadcasting in the first place because obviously it's been uh, quite the journey for you. Was there anything else that you aspired to do growing up, or were you set on sports broadcasting straight from the get-go? Uh, actually, I wanted to work in math and science. Uh, that's wow. where my skills were as a kid. I was a horrible athlete. I loved sports, but I never viewed it as a likely career path. 
that anything tangible could come about. And I, uh, folks in my family that were in engineering and in science, and and uh, that was my only varsity letter in high school was for the math team. I was a JV hockey player. I was a rec league baseball, basketball player. Yeah. My football days stopped at flag football when I was in middle school. Uh, so that's that's what I wanted to do. And at first it was electrical engineer, then it was astrophysics. Uh, but the more I looked into it, I'd have to be in college until I was in my mid to late 20s. The compensation for the jobs out of school was not as good as I thought it should be. Granted, that amount of debt you'd come out with. Yeah. Um, and the nerdy, fun stuff, you know, doing the research, that kind of stuff, you don't really do it. You spend most of your time working another job, uh, teaching generally, and soliciting for grant funding. Yeah. And putting together proposals. So I thought, do I want to be in college for, you know, almost 10 years to come out and not even do the cool stuff that I want to do? Uh, so I was at a crossroads. That was my senior year of high school. I kind of decided I did not want to pursue that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And for me, it came in my AP history class my senior year. I was doing a presentation on race relation in 20th century America and whether Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier was representative of change that was groundswelling in the country or if it helped bring about some of the conversations of that era and the change that would follow in the next decade plus. And... Uh, and part of my research was a long piece that SI did on Arthur Ashe when he was named their Sportsman of the Year. Yeah. And it was even then an archived older issue. Uh, so I, I pulled a lot of stuff from there that was great, but it just so happened in that same issue, there was this big spread on ESPN SportsCenter. And it was just at the time, because the issue was from 92, uh, becoming a major pop cultural phenomenon. And it, it looked at everything, even behind the scenes. Who's the director? Who's the producer? Who's the tape op? Who's the production assistant? What do they do? And I read the sidebar on a day in the life of a production assistant where, you know, you make the least money, you work crazy hours, you do everything nobody else wants to do. And that's when it crystallized for me, like working in sports is possible. Uh, not to think that I, I doubted ability to do any other type of role, but just the, the numbers of competition and available jobs just didn't make sense. Yeah. But I knew in that moment, like, I know I can get that job. I know if I just try hard enough and long enough, somebody will let me in for this job because they have to have turnover. Yeah. It's got to happen in a job that pays that little. And if I could just get in, my dream would be to be on the air. But recognizing how unrealistic that still is, um, I'd be very happy just to be in sports, to produce, yeah. to edit, to whatever. And that's when I kind of decided to go down that path. Now, when you decided to go down that path, what was kind of your first break in the business, whether it was like in college at Rowan, whether it was like an anchoring gig, broadcasting gig, what was your first uh, break in the business? Uh, well, my first big break was by pure coincidence, my academic advisor that I had to check in with uh, within my first few weeks on campus happened to be the general manager of the student radio station. Oh, there you go. And that was pure coincidence. Um, I I had attempted to go to the station before that, uh, just to ask questions and explore, and I, I'd seen it on my tour, uh, but they had a buzzer system that I didn't understand, and I hit the buzzer and nobody came, and so I just walked away, and I, I just kind of shelved it in the back of my head, and now I'm forced to go there because his office is, is inside of this structure, and uh, as soon as I sit down with him, he's, he's still one of my great friends and mentors to this day. He was a producer for the Sixers. Uh, when they were NBA champs, uh, he you know worked Eagles games for a long time. Was best friends with their EP. 
Um, so he knew sports, and he also knew music and programming, and and he's very uh, gruff and direct, which I greatly yeah. respect. Wow. And as soon as I sat down and he asked me what I want to do, and I told him, uh, he said, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, why aren't you here? Why aren't you working here? <laughs> and he got me into the training program then and there. I had my first session the next week, um, and that dominoed into I, I wound up becoming the sports director that spring because uh, he had seven graduating seniors that were the core of the sports department. And there, at that point, still were no younger people ready to kind of take the mantle. And yeah. the timing was perfect. Wow. And, uh, I mean, that story kind of goes into my next question. Biggest mentor uh, in broadcasting, whether it was that right there or maybe someone farther along the lines in actual broadcasting, who would you say was your biggest mentor getting into the business? Uh, well, Frank definitely was to the outset. But, but yeah. to be to be honest, I mean, there have been dozens of people, and, and both directly and indirectly, you know, you wind up emulating and kind of integrating pieces of those that you like listening to nationally and locally and, um, and a ton of people that I've met in the business over the years. But I would say the ones that gave me the most frequent, direct, critical, impactful feedback it was definitely Frank in the early stage of the game. Um, there was a guy named Ed Bankin who preceded me by 10 years at Rowan. Uh, he is the Philadelphia Eagles beat reporter for the major radio mm-hmm. station in Philly. Um, he now teaches at Rowan, uh, but he's, he's worked in the industry for a long time doing a lot of things. Uh, he was a huge help in getting me in doing games at Princeton University. Um, and Howie Deneroff, who's the executive uh, producer, vice president of Westwood One Sports, who gave me my first big national crack and still remains to this day uh, in similar regard to Frank, uh, yeah. the most honest, direct feedback of any executive in the industry. It's a, it's an industry that that can be filled with a lot of superfluous fluff. There can be a lot of ego stroking. You're not always told the honest truth. Right. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but Howie will tell you what he likes and what he doesn't like. And he'll tell you why. And he has rationalization for it. And you don't necessarily always agree with it, but the guy's got a really, really good ear. Um, yeah, he works at the highest level, and he cares. And he cares about the broadcast. I mean, you got to appreciate that from the get-go. And for you in broadcasting, when you first started out, I know me in school right now, uh, the first thing you do is try and emulate what you know or basically just go off of what you know. Me growing up in Jersey, big Yankee fan, big Michael K fan, immediately what I did. What did you like? Was there a big influence for you when you started broadcasting, and was there anybody you tried to emulate right off the bat? Uh, I could definitely hear, if I go back and listen to those tapes now, I, I can hear a poor man's Bob Costas probably more <laughs> than anyone else. Um, you know, it's, I love a lot of sports, uh, and I, I love the idea of working a lot of sports. And he had kind of assumed that mantle right at that time, you know, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, of a major national role on the NBA, you know, doing the finals, working the World Series, uh, working the Olympics, and you know, if, if gun to my head at the time, you would ask me if there's any one role you, you would like to have and you can dream as big as you want, it would be something akin to that. They had the chance to work the highest caliber events with the greatest variety. And yeah. I really appreciated how smart he was, but while I also felt like he, he measured that and he didn't you know, talk down to the viewer or the listener, um, and he, he gave a very logical, 
viewpoint while still accenting and hitting emotion when necessary and didn't over talk and um, was well researched and uh, he, he just had a presence and a command that I, I had great respect for. What about uh, like just sports and generally mentioned baseball, football, basketball? I saw you did water polo too. Like, what, what's your favorite sport to broadcast? Uh, there really isn't one, to be honest. I mean, I, I think good. they're all they all have their pluses and minuses. I, I would say I think the hardest sport to do is baseball on the radio. Yeah, uh, because it's you know ten to twenty minutes ball and play action. You know, depending upon the era and the team you're talking about. And, uh, and the rest is you. It's a totally blank canvas. Uh, so that's the greatest challenge to do well. You can do the nuts and bolts pretty easily if you're just going to make sure you give any and score uh, some basic description. But to do it well, there's so much more art than science to it. And it's this never-yielding never pursuit of a perfect game, which you cannot possibly do. Even right. within the confine of your own ability and your own tendency, we'll all always look back when you're ex- speaking extemporaneously for three hours and say, you know, I should have done this. I should have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have laid out more there. I should have brought up this fact. Um, and yeah, I think that's the great joy is that it's this constant uh, effort to achieve your own version of perfection. You can never quite rest on your laurels if you're truly challenging yourself and trying to do a good game. Yeah. Um, but there are pluses to all of them. And, and I find that I wind up looking forward to the next sport quite a bit as that season approaches because you miss it. Um, and then I also find that probably the biggest contrasts come at the start and end of baseball. You know, when baseball starts in the spring, I'm usually just coming off of or still in the middle of doing the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And there couldn't be you know, a bigger difference in terms of pacing and the whole nature of the mechanics of how you do a game. I, I find myself in baseball monologuing to myself internally, slow the heck down. You're really <laughs> too fast, it's too much energy, you need to be more measured, more conversational. And then I find the inverse as baseball spills into football. You know, football is very formulaic, down and distance, time and score, formation, play, analyst, repeat, over and over and over and over again. Where, where baseball, it's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, and then moments that happen are chaotic by nature. Uh, and you have to kind of pick and choose the detail. You cannot give the entire picture at once. You need to make sure you point out what's most important and most relevant. And then I find myself in football... Uh, not quite hitting that same cadence, not mm-hmm. quite finding that same rhythm, and needing to up my energy at the big plays that have much greater consequence when you're playing one game a week. Now, to that point, with all those sports, baseball, football, obviously the bigger ones, you know, by heart, you're a fan of the games. How, what's the game prep like for baseball, football, or even, like I mentioned before, you doing water polo? Like, they got to be totally different uh, prep styles. Yeah, I think, and they're very different TV to radio, too. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it depends a lot. It depends upon, are you doing a national broadcast or a local broadcast? How heavily sold are you? What's your analyst like? Do they like to talk? Do they not like to talk? Are you conversational with one another? Do you really listen to each other? If you're on a TV crew, what's your producer like? Yeah, how involved do they want to be? Um, it's much more of a team circumstance than it is on the radio. Uh, it, it varies wildly. Yeah, and you kind of settle into a groove of what you should do to prepare. Uh, 
based upon all those other factors. I, I would say this, though. I think the universal thing that happens, I love the preparation. I am, you know, I am a very proud nerd, and <laughs> I, I almost like the research as much as I do doing, doing the game. Yeah. I almost like discovering something as much as I do calling it. But because of that, with every sport, I always find I over-prepare, which I think you should. Right. Um, and and over-prepare is, is a purposefully chosen word, not only because I'm just gathering an excess of information, but as I get older and as I do it more, the thing I think you get best at as time goes on is knowing what not to say, not to force something in, not to just prove, hey, I did all this research. Here's some fun fact that doesn't gel or fit right. with the moment. You, you got to learn kind of naturally. There's no way to do it other than repetition to feel the rhythm and momentum of the game itself. And the game will dictate. you got to listen to the game. And just the overall flow of what's happening, and understand the business commitments too. Did you shelve a bunch of live reads that you had to do early because there was a sequence that you thought needed to play out for the viewer or listener? You got to pay the bills at some point. Right. So at some point, you got to shut up. <laughs> now, when it comes to prepping, what's your kind of critique? What's your style of of uh, organizing all your notes? That also varies wildly by sport and by medium. You know, if yeah. you looked at my spotting board for football radio versus TV, and college versus NFL, the basic structure looks very similar, but the, the detail on how it's arranged is wildly different uh, for a lot of you know, pretty obvious reasons. If you're doing an NFL game, I don't need to explain to you who a four-time All-Pro is, what his background right. is, where he went to college. It's irrelevant. Everybody knows that that's watching the game. And if they don't know it, it doesn't really add to the context or the game all that much. But in college, where you might be dealing with 90 guys that could actually play in an non-blowout game, you do want to selectively, as it fits, as it calls for it, flesh out the humanity and the background a little bit more. Where in the pro game, I feel like it's much more about that game and the strategy of the game. And a little less of the humanizing, uh, unless it's appropriate. And, and you got to kind of know the storylines and the context going in and then adjust as the game shows who's having a great day, right. who's having a bad day, why, what's relevant about them more recently. Uh, but I think you know, the bottom line is you'll find a lot more small, you know, bio kind of human interest type information on a chart I do for a college game than an NFL game. And I think you would find that there's more of that in a TV game than a radio game. Because in radio, there's really not that much time to tell all those stories. Right. You know, if you're doing live reads, if you have longer commercial breaks, people really just want to know what's the score, where's the ball. That's, that's what they want to know. And you got to give room for your analyst who, at that level, is going to be someone fairly accomplished that has a personality, that has opinions, that's going to be fleshing out with a football context what's happening. Um, so I, it, it varies. Um, I, I would say the same, you know, NBA versus college basketball. I've had the chance to do both, and TV versus radio with the two. The If you looked at two files that I created, one for the, you know, Detroit Pistons and one for um, the University of Florida, they'll look similar, but as you start to read it, the amount of information and how I organize that information is different, and it changes every year. Yeah. Every year, I... I 
look at it in advance of the season and I ask myself, what did I like? What did I not like? What can I do better? And I, I make sometimes small changes, sometimes bigger changes. But if you put them down over a 10-year span, year to year, you will see progressively significant change that, that will continue to change. And on that topic, like you just mentioned, like things that you don't like, things that you do like, and things that you can do better with your broadcast in general, what was your experience like as a young broadcaster kind of making that demo tape and sending it out to people? Like, Did you like everything that you had on it, or did you feel like maybe there were some things that you could have done better? No, I mean, still to this day. I mean, I'll I'll be honest with you. Today, I was working on a demo. Today. (laughs) And I went through the first three cuts that I thought I was going to like, and I found something I hated in all three. Yeah. Um, I, I think for most of us, it is nails on a chalkboard when we listen to right. ourselves. Yeah. We know ourselves the best, so we hear all of our own worst weaknesses. Um, and I think that's largely a good thing. I think if you... I, I'm not a believer in listening to every single second of every single broadcast. I, I just... I, I think that becomes counterproductive. But I do think you need to semi-regularly listen to yourself and air-check yourself. And you need to be honest with yourself about what's good and bad. And that both means what you hear in yourself and you need to have a support network of people that are both in and out of the industry whose opinions you respect, who will shoot you straight, that you can send a cut and tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. And it could be, you know, five seconds of feedback. It could be a 20 minute conversation. Uh, but I think you need to take that temperature and for, for each person, it's different, you know, how often you want to do it. It depends upon how many games you're doing, how busy you are, what's your family life like, you know, that all evolves. But as a young announcer, I would say uh, my my only professional regret, and not to say I didn't make any other mistakes. I've made a ton of mistakes, but I think I needed to make those mistakes. Right. I don't think I could have known better. The one thing I should have known better, and I, I didn't do right, I wasn't aggressive enough early enough, chiefly because I was always in search of that perfect demo. Right. I'd always listen to my own stuff and say, you know, this is really good but I didn't do this cleanly. I could have told that story better. You know, I, I didn't nail that moment the first time. I kind of did it more in the recap. It doesn't matter. Everybody's tape, especially at that stage of your career, has flaws. Mm-hmm. Just send it out. Right. Get that feedback. And when you send it out, you might get feedback that you're unaware of, something that you were doing wrong or that hiring people don't like or do like that you should do more or less of or include or not include. Um, and somebody might just hire you. Even if you think your demo is right. flawed, you still might get the job. So <laughs> I th- my, my, my earnest recommendation to younger announcers always is make sure you choose your best stuff. Don't arbitrarily right. just choose a game for the sake thereof. Choose your best. But send it out to as many people as you can. And, and don't send it out saying, I want a job. I mean, unless there's a specific opening you're applying for Send it out and say, give me feedback. Tell me what I'm doing right. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And 99% will not respond or or say you're doing great with generic praise. But you're going to get someone along the way who's going to give you honest feedback, good and bad. And Mm -hmm. they're both productive. Now, on that note, what was the kind of the best or, I guess, humbling critique or piece of advice you ever got from a broadcaster? Hmm. Uh, Well, I mean, I think the best advice I ever got really wasn't from a broadcaster. When I was at Rowan, a state school in South Jersey, our college basketball coach was a guy named Joe Cassidy. He would uh, umpire baseball in the offseason. He was the operations guy that was in charge of working the home football games. 
and I would see him at non-basketball events all the time. And every time he'd see me, uh, he was very nice. We're still friendly to this day. I usually see him once or twice a year. But he would always say, hey, John, time and score. And, and that's yeah. the most nuts and bolts, basic, obvious stuff that as a young announcer you totally forget. And yeah, some could be insulted by that, but he was really doing it earnestly to, to help me. Yeah. And, and to help himself because he's getting in the car and he wants to know, is it the third quarter or the fourth quarter? Do I have to be there to help let the student workers off? Or, uh, but he was right. And I don't know that I uh, wound up actually integrating it as fast and as well as I could and should have. Right. Because uh, I was young and stupid, as <laughs> we all are. And we all need to fail and learn what failure is to actually get good. But, but that was probably the most direct feedback at a time when, you know, if, if I were to go back and listen to it now, the tape is probably garbage. Yeah. If you interviewed 20-year-old me, I would have said, this is great. I should have a job doing X, Y, Z. And, uh, and to hear something like that, that was, it didn't go beyond that. It was, it was that basic, but it was right. And it's what I needed to hear. Well, that's great that he did that, because at the end of the day, I guess that's who we're trying to make look good, the coaches, the players. Did you have any uh, issues, or like you just mentioned right there with that coach at Rowan, did you have any issues with any uh, players that had to pull you aside saying that you said something wrong on the broadcast? Uh, Well, I had one funny sequence. Uh, So senior day, it was also my senior year, and we had a young man by the name of Tim Stazuski. Uh, so he's getting honored you know, since senior day. It's a conference game. And he has his, I think it was his second at bat, third or fourth inning, uh, you know, single, ground out, whatever it was. At the end of the half inning, I get a tap on the shoulder. And I pivot, I take my headset off, and this gentleman introduces himself, says, hey, you guys have done a great job for four years, really appreciate it. Just wanted to say hello, I'm Tim's dad. And a uh, small thing, but his whole family's here because it's senior day. Yeah. We're all listening. And it's a Polish last name. It's actually, I know it's read that way, but it's pronounced Staszewski. And, you know, I, I just went total, like, ghost white in the face. I'm like, oh, my God, I am so <laughs> sorry. I got to call this guy's games for four years. Four and years, yeah. Fudging his name. I've had class with him. Like, I, I know he told me it was, to, I know he did. But here's his dad. So, like, oh, I'm so sorry. So the next half inning, it's a conference game. Whole family's there. Why? Because... The Rowan player's cousin, father's brothers, is on the other team that they're playing. So he comes up the next half inning, and I refer to him as Staszewski. At the end of that half yeah. inning, I get another tap on the shoulder. It's that kid's dad, the brother of the first kid's dad, who says, hey, I'm so sorry. Uh, we are Staszewskis. Uh, my father passed, and my brother did all this genealogical research and discovered that in Poland, the family name was pronounced Staszewski. <laughs> my dad's entire life, he was a Staszewski. I've been a Staszewski my entire life, and my kid is a Staszewski. So if he and his kid want you to call him Staszewski, that's fine. But me and my kid, we are Staszewskis. And for the rest of the game, fathers, brothers, cousins with the same last name, I pronounce the two names differently. That's bizarre. I've never heard anything like that. I was going to ask what kind of like your biggest broadcast blunder was on the air, whether it was just verbiage or something that just didn't come out right. But that that there's that's interesting. That's the same family. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so I, I don't know the innards of uh, whatever other family drama there might have wow. been, but that's how we handled it for the rest of the day. Um, and, and, and I've yeah, I've thankfully been 
uh, been blessed, but I, I haven't had much in the way of run-ins or anything like that. Yeah. The only one that I ever had was in A-ball. Uh, we had a pitcher uh, who was pitching near his hometown. The team was in uh, Northern Virginia. I worked for the Wilmington Blue Rocks in Delaware. They were a Royals affiliate. They're playing the Potomac, uh, I think they were the Nationals at that point, uh, the Washington Nationals affiliate. And starting pitcher for Wilmington, didn't have a great day. And uh, it was a day game, travel day. Uh, and uh, I didn't really think anything of it. Almost a week later, we're back home. Um, and the pitching coach, who was a friend of mine, stops by the desk, says hello. And he says, by the way, uh, did you talk to him? I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And uh, he informs me that the, the pitcher from that day uh, heard from his family that I was incredibly critical of him and, and that I said he was only a minor league player and he would yeah. never be anything more than that. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't remember saying anything like that. I said, well, he's very upset. He's telling other guys in the clubhouse about it. You need to address this. I said, okay, well, thank you for telling me. I'm glad you said something. So I went down there and, uh, and I said, hey, can I talk to you? And uh, he told me what he had heard from his family. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go to my desk. I'm going to pull up the game. I'm going to listen for it. I'm going to see if I can find something similar to whatever you're describing. And then we'll listen to it together. And if I said something out of line, then let me have it. You know, and tell me I'm a jerk. And, and, but I really don't remember saying what's being told to you. So I found the sequence. And I brought him over to the desk. And uh, what I had said was that you know, he was having trouble commanding all of his pitches that day. And I wasn't saying him specifically. I was speaking in general, but I was praising the abilities of those at the lowest level of the minor leagues, saying that on their best day, with their A-grade stuff, they are the equal, some are even the better of their major league counterpart. Yeah. But the fundamental difference is the major league player can execute it consistently. And the minor league player is learning to do that. And it takes repetition and time to eventually develop that, that, you know, uh, that muscle memory to be able to repeat it 99 times out of 100, which the major league player does. Right. The minor league player does it. Maybe they do it 85 times out of 100. But if you make 15 mistakes, well, you're going to let up six runs. You're going to lose the game. When he heard it in that context, he profusely apologized to me, apparently had right. uh, come to Jesus with his family member that had heard it, and we had a great relationship from that day forward. We, we were friendly. Now, is it different on every level, like working in baseball, whether it's single-A, double-A, triple-A, obviously Major League Baseball, different. You're working with people with different maturity levels all the time at any one of those levels. How different is it working from double-A to triple-A to Major League Baseball? Uh, well, I've only done one season of Major League Baseball, right. and I never had any, any run-ins or confrontations. And to be honest, in the minors, I, I never had anything other than that one incident to that degree. Um, I don't know that I can really speak in that context, but overall, you know, difference in behavior and interaction, they're all very different animals. You know, like it, as I find, at least in my experience, at the lowest level of the minors, and, and I also have to contextualize this, that I was a lot younger then. I was in my, you know, mid to late 20s. I was very close in age to most of the players. We were very friendly. And now, I, I don't know, I think you always kind of try to draw that line I tried to never become friends with them um, because I, I didn't think that was fair to them or to the broadcast or, and just as a professional force of habit. Um, but I was friendly, and the guys that I liked, I truly liked, and I would root for them even if they went to other teams or whatever they would do in their lives. Um, 
but I, I would try not to socialize right. know, outside of the field that much. I, I, I made a con- there were exceptions to that um, due to circumstance, but that was my conscious effort. Uh, I do find as you move along that there is a greater distance as there's more uh, time playing. It, to be to be honest, players get burnt by people. You know, right. people uh, sell themselves in one way and then act in another way, and and I see it. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've been quoted in the newspaper no more than ten times in my life, right. and I have been misquoted every time. Now they usually got the basic gist; it was usually the same basic meaning, but the words were rearranged, or a word was outright changed. Um, so if that happens to me, and I'm speaking of nothing with any form of controversy or you know personal opinion or. It's got to happen to these guys all the time, right. all the time. And uh, so I get it. I totally understand it. And I think that's where, as you move along, uh, you need to, to build that trust. And it, it takes a lot more time and work. And that's what, in my AAA experience, made AAA very difficult. Um, my first two years, there were the team that I worked for tied the all-time league record for most players used in a season, um, for most transactions in a season. We had 200-something transactions and 75 different players played in the game wearing the uniform that year. Yeah. Um, so it's very hard to forge any kind of connection with someone when they're coming and going literally almost every day. Right. There's some kind of a move. Um, where, you know, when I was in A-ball... They had probably maybe 35 players the entire year. You're pretty much with that core group. It's a half season. Uh, so usually the best players would go up near the all-star break-ish, and there'd be another wave that would come in. But you'd have the core guys that could kind of validate you to the next yeah. wave. Like, no, nah, he's okay. He's good. Like, you, you can trust him. Um, when there's that level of turnover at AAA, and that's not every clubhouse. It, it totally varies by organization. I think philosophically, most organizations since, and that wasn't that long ago, it was 2013-14, my first two years there, now view AAA as more of a prospect level than they used to. I think it used to be for some, you'd get to AA, that was the main prospect level, and then guys would sometimes jump over AAA or very shortly stay there, depending upon the personality dynamic of the clubhouse. Um, but my last three years in AAA, the Yankees philosophically, and, and because of the wave of talent that were coming through, it became a prospect level. And then the day-to-day changed. You know, then we had players that were there for at least most of a season, if not spilling over into multiple campaigns, and it became a lot easier. And you just mentioned those teams, because that Yankee, when you were there 2013 through 2017, obviously the Sanchez's are coming through, the Judges, Bird, Tyler Austin, you name them. How much pressure was there to, uh, well, not only coincide, but to call those games during a time where that was basically like the next wave of Yankee talent? Because I know you did get honored by Baseball Digest that first season in 2013, too. Uh, Yeah, I would say the opposite of pressure. I thought it was awesome. Awesome, yeah. They won a ton of games. Um, They were incredibly good players. Uh, And they're great dudes. Yeah, I think that's something the Yankees uh, and the Royals, I I was lucky with both organizations that I was with, they do really care a lot about the depth of character of people. Um, that, that's something that they're looking for when they're scouting, both in terms of amateurs and free agents. Um, they want a good clubhouse. That, that kind of culture matters to them. 
And when your best players are your best people, clubhouses kind of take care of themselves. And then it's it's like the ultimate joy because the team wins, the guys are, are play great, and they're really good people that you can joke with, you can have fun with, you can you can actually engage in a meaningful way. And uh, that whole that whole group collectively, and a lot of the guys that have moved on to other organizations, you know, that were used as trade chips yeah. or as other pieces, or just there was a gluttony and a, and a bit of a lock at certain positions. Um, a tremendously awesome group, and uh, and the coaching staff as well. When when Al Padrique came in as the manager, uh, just a fantastic dude uh, that, that set the tone for everybody there. Who would you say is the who would you say for in your sake personally has been the most fun person to work with, whether it was a coach or a player in any sport? Uh, Wow, that's that's heavy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's just so many people. I mean, if, if you ask me to look at like just my on-air partners, I've yeah. I've probably had close to a hundred. Um, I'd have to give that so much more thought than I could, you know, spur of the moment. Um, and and I, I would feel like I'm disrespecting a lot of people uh, right. because I, I've been lucky. Like so many people that I've worked with are great, and then they all have different strengths and weaknesses. You know, on-air. Um, in terms of what they bring to the table, but personality-wise, like working as a as a teammate, um, just I, I've been really, really lucky. And the the core people I've been working with, you know, and I was in minor league baseball. I spent the last three years in Scranton with a guy named Darren Hedrick, uh, who I became friendly with in a ball when he was with another team. And I tried recruiting him there for several years, and finally it worked out. And I was able to get him there, and he's still one of my best friends to this day. We had so many laughs and so much fun. I've been with Randy Cross on football almost every game since I started with CBS in 2014. Uh, awesome dude. Uh, and then basketball has been a wide variety of people um, that, that have all been fantastic. Wow. And and when so when your dream is kind of realized there, you're broadcasting, whether it's in college, uh, minor league ball, NCAA tournament, major league baseball with the Mets. For you, how how do you handle kind of the nerves leading up to that, whether it's actual nerves or more in the lines of anxiety? Uh, that's a good question. I think it varies um, because there were times when my support system was right there with me and there were times it wasn't. And that's part of the nomadic yeah. nature of our industry. Um, my daughter was born the day I was offered the Yankees AAA job. And wow. my wife had been in labor for over 30 hours before she was born. Uh, so it was not a normal set of circumstances, even for the, the significant event of the, the birth of your first child. Yeah. And, uh, and I left it up to my wife. I said, hey, you tell me. Like they, they just called and offered the job. But you know, we have a newborn, literally just born today, sitting here resting in our arms. If you tell me no... Uh, we're living in Wilmington, Delaware. The job's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's a good three-hour drive without traffic. Uh, that's not commutable. Tell me what you want me to do. And she said, I think you should take it. So I did. Uh, so that first year, I lived there by myself. I, I lived in a small one-bedroom apartment. They came up when they could, but my wife was working full-time. Um, I went down when I could, but that was rare. We were in a brand-new stadium with a rebranded team. I was just brought on board. There were a lot of things outside of baseball that I had to do. Um, the next year, she had moved up there, but we had a terrible winter. Uh, the living arrangements were not ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the social experience was lacking. She was incredibly homesick, and then she moved back. So with a lot of these steps, um, you know, there were times that I had people I could lean on, and talk to and would kind of bring me down. Um, 
in terms of any anxiety or nervousness. There are other times that I was, I was painfully alone, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so it really varies. Uh, but, but that said, I think, I think having a little bit of nerves before you go on air is a good thing. If I ever got to a point when I constantly was super relaxed, not just acting that way, but truly that way underneath, um, I think it might be time to find another job. I right. want that thrill to some extent. Uh, now, that said, you know, more specifically to your question, I've never been more nervous or anxious than I was doing the Mets games. Right. Um, and for a lot of reasons. But chiefly, I knew going into those games that more people that are close to me that matter to me would listen to that than anything else I'd ever done. Uh, now, there are certainly other broadcasts that went to way more overall people that I had done, uh, but I grew up in the greater New York metro. You know, all of my friends growing up were Yankees or Mets fans. Right. Um, so they still mostly live in the New York, New Jersey corridor. They can tune in to 880 and listen to the game. It's a big deal that I'm doing my first Major League Baseball game. And it's a one-off game in the middle of a series. I hadn't done baseball on the radio in almost two years at that point. And it's a muscle memory you know, type of thing that's very hard to just turn a switch on and be good at right away. So by far, that was uh, the most nervous that I ever was going into a game. And I was going to work alongside Howie Rose. Yeah, I grew up a diehard New York Rangers fan. The 93-94 Rangers season is still to this day the most revered and celebrated team of my childhood. And I think in large part because I've never worked NHL. I've done NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball games now. But I've never worked the NHL. I assume at this point I never will. Uh, so it, there's something to that imagery, that feeling of what I viewed it as as a kid is still permanently seared in there. You know, it, it's, yeah. the curtain's never been pulled back. I still idolize all of those guys, um, and I'm sure many of them are great, and I'm sure there are some that aren't, but I, I view all of them in the lens of, you know, 7 to 15-year-old me. And uh, and here's the guy who called them that Togo. From that, game, from that, that yeah. season. I, I listened to it. I had the radio on in the driveway. I couldn't get it in the house. And, uh, you know, I, I, when they played, uh, you know, game six against the Devils, uh, at the time, there was no national coverage within those local markets. You had to watch your local feed. But if the game was in Jersey, it was on Sports Channel, which was a paid channel. Right. And because I wasn't a Devils fan, we didn't have Sports Channel. So the video was on, but between the lines, which was a thing back then, where it was like color bars all over the place, and for like two out of every 30 seconds, you could maybe make out the silhouette of a person and what they were doing. And I had Howie's radio on. I'm going to work a game with this guy. I know. Who is directly intertwined with like the pinnacle moment. Yes, they won the cup, and that was brilliant. I had so many Devil fan friends and so many Ranger fan friends. Uh, that series meant everything. And that Mattel moment was just earth-shattering amazing. Now, leading up to that game, what was that whole process like, getting that call to saying, like, we have an opening for you if you want to broadcast uh, select games this season for the Mets? And what was that like for you kind of entering that uh, stadium, City Field, for the first time, knowing it was going to be in a different capacity? Um, well, I think more to the latter question first. Like, that's what was really the bigger emotional crescendo. And uh, what definitely helped a lot is that they allowed me 
to go to a, a multiple games before I made my broadcast debut. So I could kind of see the lay of the land, get a feel for where the booth is, what the view is like, where's the radar gun, where do the reads come from, what's the interplay like with the producer and with your partner. And, and that helped tremendously to be able to sit there and watch it, to listen while I'm watching the game live from that same point of view. Um, that helped normalize a ton of it. Uh, but that said... You know, I was literally the first person there for my broadcast crew. I, I got there in the you know mid-afternoon, and uh, the, the select nets were out there taking early work, and the booth was literally locked. I didn't have a key. I couldn't <laughs> even go into it. And so I sat in the stands, and I just I watched guys you know, shagging flies. I watched guys working on their bullpen. I watched guys getting swings in on the field. Um, and it was it was pretty awesome it was pretty emotional um it was a a a great joy um it helped i think to calm things a little bit um in terms of getting the call to do the games that was there really was no singular moment because um it, it was a long series of communications spread over months where i knew there was a right shoulder change um that sometimes means jobs open because weird stuff happens with contracts or other opportunities or decision makers or whatever. I knew nothing, you know, no inside news. I just knew there's a rights holder change. So I sent out uh, communication just to say, hey, uh, if you do get the rights, if this happens, if something opens, I'd love to be considered for whatever you may need. Um, and, the, and my honest thinking was this could lead to fill-in opportunity. Uh, and it might not the first year. It could be two, three, four years later. But that was my thought. Um, I was told at first, you know, there's nothing's a done deal. Uh, you know, we, we got to wait and see what's actually going to happen. Months go by. Then it's, uh, could you send me a tape? But without any context to, like, why. Mm-hmm. So I send a tape. Months go by. I send a check-in. Hey, yeah, still working through things. Not sure what's happening. Months go by. I mean, we're talking like almost a year Jeez. from the initial reach out until finally I'm told, uh, yeah, we may have a certain number of games for you. Would you be interested? And I say, yes, of course. But that's still not really an offer. It's right. We may have games available. So to be honest, I don't even remember exactly when or what, how it happened when the, the true offer came because there was nothing in writing until a lot closer to when I actually broadcast the games. It looked very probable. It looked like it was happening. Yeah. But I don't know that I ever experienced that kind of moment because it was spread out over such a long span of time with this wave of uncertainty that it is very typical of the industry, by the way. That's not to speak ill of anybody there. That's right. just kind of the way things work because there's always so many moving parts, especially when you're taking over something. Um, even though there was previous history, hadn't had it in a long time, you got to get things signed off by other people with other organizations. And it's, it's a complex layered matrix. And yeah, I'm the filling guy. It's not really that big of a deal right. it's big to me, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a, it's a minor you know, little piece of the puzzle. Now to that point, talking about some of the difficulties in the business, you kind of alluded to it earlier with your time in Scranton, moving to Scranton right after uh, your daughter was born. What, what was it like? Like, what's the biggest sacrifice you think you've made in your broadcast career, if not that? Uh, I, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I can't tell you how many weddings, birthday yeah. parties, funerals I, I've had to miss um, because I had a broadcast. Yeah, it's, 
it's a choice. You can choose not to, uh, but I think, and there have been times where I did, um, and I was selective and strategic about how and when, And uh, but just looking at what has happened to a lot of my peers, a lot of my friends, I find that especially early, the first time you say no, for any reason, it could be a tremendously legitimate reason. And to be honest, the, the employer's not going to be mad at you. They're not going to hold a personal grudge but they're probably not going to call you next time. Right. Now, they would eventually if they run into some no's, but you're going to go from number one on the list to number four, number seven, whatever it is. And if you are at number one on the list and you fall down, the chances of getting back up before you've established yourself are not great. Um, and I don't think that's specific to sports. I think that happens in every industry right. to some extent. Uh, but sports broadcasting, because it is largely freelance, 1099, um, it's more that way. I would imagine that actors are in a very similar boat. I would imagine that anybody who works in that kind of short-term contract basis, um, when they call, you, got, you don't have to say yes, but you're going to be sorry if you say no. Right. And right now, in a sense... Uh, being a freelance broadcaster, what's that whole situation like? Because sports are slowly starting to come back. Baseball just announced they're coming back. Basketball, obviously, at the end of July. What's your situation like there when it comes to uh, finding work? Um, as up in the air as everyone else. Right. You know, it, it just depends upon if there's a season. Um, and then it depends upon how much of a season there is and, and what's technologically possible, what's health-wise possible. Um, as of now, I, I would believe I'm going to have a fairly full slate of college football games this fall. Right. But if there are no football games, then I, I can't announce them. Um, so I, I would say that's way too fluid at this point to have any kind of you know square set knowledge. Um, and yeah, you know, that's something that runs through my head quite a bit. Is uh, there there is no drop dead date, but you know whatever with any permanence, I have to mentally prepare myself for. What if college football gets canceled? Right. It could happen. It might happen. Uh, what do I do? I, I probably got to go find another job, to be honest. I mean, unless some other opportunity erupts, I probably got to go do something more nine to five, relatively close to where I'm living. Is I, I got to make money. It's uh, uh, yeah, like everybody in this country. It's it's a very challenging, difficult time. And you know, part of my independent worry, honestly, at this point is uh, the timing of that. Because you know, if the economy does start to turn up steam relatively more and more jobs start to appear, they're going to be rapidly filled by the tens of millions of people right. that are looking for work. So do I get word on something not being available too late and then miss out on the window of time to get another job? But if I go get another job and then I have the opportunity to announce, now I've got to bail on that job for a certain amount of time in order to keep my broadcast situation, I don't want to burn bridges or opportunities that I may be able to use later. So it's it's very difficult, and there's no real good or right answer. I mean, not to talk hypotheticals here, but have you given, have you given it any thought as to what you would want to do if you had to go that route? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've given it a ton of thought. It's, uh, I do know that if, if the industry ever basically told me that I've more than hit my ceiling and my opportunities are, are shrinking or disappearing, which very well could happen. Right. It's a very fickle, weird industry. You can do nothing wrong, and that can happen. Um, and I've seen that happen to other people. 
I have an idea on the, the handful of industries or specific jobs that I would want to pursue that I think I could get something in and I'd be happy with. And, um, but I don't think that fits for these situations. I think that's different. Right. I think with this, I, I, no matter what happens with this virus, which I don't think is going away, and I do think will have an effect to some extent uh, for uh, an appreciable span of time right. still to come, I'm still looking at something relatively temporary. I don't expect sports to be gone for years. I think they'll find some way to do something, even if it affects things in the immediate short term. Um, so with that in mind, I don't know that I want to go down that, you know, if the sports ship goes sailing on me, what's the next route? I, I, whenever I go down that route, I... I I got to be pretty sure that that's that's what it's going to be to stay. Right, and, and the last thing I wanted to ask you, another kind of hypothetical here, is if everything eventually, like you just said, I don't think COVID nineteen is going away anytime soon. But let's say 20, 2021, 2022 for you, what's the biggest thing that you want to accomplish moving forward as a broadcaster? Like, what's the big thing that is kind of keeping you going that makes you say that's what I want to accomplish moving forward? Um, well, I think it really goes back to what I was saying earlier, and that's. I'm always in pursuit of that perfect broadcast. Yeah. I'm always trying to, I want to walk away from a game feeling immediately great, thinking we nailed it, we did as good a job as possible, and then be able to go back and watch that game and have it validated. And I've never had that happen. I've had moments where I got up from the table and thought we had a great game, and I go back and watch it, and I find you know one, two, three things at the least where I'm like, you know, didn't handle that great. Could have done that better. That was a hiccup. Uh, and the average viewer might not even notice it. They might even like it. But to me, it wasn't quite perfect. Um, and I usually find the inverse. I don't know about you. This was me in my test-taking days in school, too. Every time I got up from the test and I thought I got 100, I usually didn't do great. Right. And every time I got away from a test and I said, I'm not sure how I did, I wound up with a 98. <laughs> um, and I feel that way when I do games. Um, and to be honest, that's what drives me. That's what... I love calling games. So I've done it at, at many levels. I've been lucky to do it at high levels and for significant employers. But to be honest, I love equally and in some ways sometimes more you know, my student broadcasts. When I did my Division three alma mater playing in the national semifinal uh, to snap the longest win streak in college football history on a non-commercial station with non-professional fellow broadcasters, which I very much was at the time as well, but these guys are some of my best friends still to this day. Like, that was awesome. I, I loved it. And I loved it also because we were trying to do a great broadcast. The broadcast mattered to us, communicating clearly and properly and entertaining and informing the people that were consuming the game mattered. And it still matters. No matter right. what event I do, no matter what sport, no matter what level, what medium, I want to do the best job that I can do. And that's the biggest thing. Game to game, event to event, season to season, sport to sport. Just try to do a great job. Have you ever noticed that, like, on the fly in the middle of a broadcast, like you say to yourself, like, man, like, it's so far so good. Like, it's perfect so far. And then you run into a moment you're just like, crap, it's ruined. No. Um, <laughs> uh, to be honest, I am not a uh, not very superstitious in general. Like, right. I think the whole, like, no hitter, perfect game thing is ridiculous. It's, right. You have no impact on the game. But the only things I do believe in in terms of, of superstition or jinx, I do believe that if you ever say that a game is flying in terms of pace and tempo, it will immediately grind to a halt. Oh, yeah. I've seen and heard that happen time and time again. And I think similarly, if, if 
you lose paying attention in the moment to what you're doing, and you start thinking while you're doing the game in that big a picture, like, oh, this is a great demo. Oh, my goodness, this is the wheels are going to come off. So right. I don't allow my brain to go that way. And, and I think the way I'm wired, I, I can't. Um, I, I am so hyper-focused in each play, on the next read, on watching and listening to what my partner is saying, that I, I, I don't kind of pull out and, and look at the big picture that way until it's over. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. Thanks so much for being gracious enough to take the time out of your day to talk to me, and I hope to hear you on the air pretty soon. You got it. Thank you, Jack. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.